Hey friends, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Today, we are going to take a look at Wild Beyond the Witchlight Chapter 3. I have done a series of videos looking at the Wizards of the Coast published hardcover adventure Wild Beyond the Witchlight. You can find it all in a playlist here on YouTube. You can see all of the videos, and each of my videos covers one chapter of the book. So today, we're going to look at specifically Wild Beyond the Witchlight Chapter 3, which is Thither. And we're also going to look at how I've modified it using my idea of taking Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and the Domains of Dread from Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft and connecting them into Wild Beyond the Witchlight to create a really interesting, whimsical and dark juxtaposition for the game. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to get access to exclusive video previews, exclusive material, source books like The City of Arches, a city source book, all kinds of exclusive stuff, and you want to help support shows like this, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can find a link to become a patron of Sly Flourish in the show notes below. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for helping me put on all of this kind of stuff. What I have found running Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and it has remained true so far, I don't know and I don't think it's going to remain true for the entire book. I have heard rumors and I've read a lot about Chapter 5, which is the Palace of Heart's Desire, that that chapter needs a little bit of work. But so far, every chapter that I've run in Wild Beyond the Witchlight has not required me to do any major structural work to get it to run really well. When I read it, it reads, it's, it's very enjoyable, it makes sense, the pacing and the flow of it makes sense, it's, it's, it's very solid. There are things I've definitely changed. I change every adventure, and as DMs, I'm sure, most DMs, if not all DMs, change adventures to modify their, to, to suit themselves, what they're interested in, to suit their group, to suit what has gone on in the story. I highly recommend you do that. If you buy a published adventure, use it, and enjoy it, but customize it for what you dig and customize it for what your players, what your players are going to enjoy. So, but what I, when I, what I find from a good adventure is I don't have to do that. There aren't things where I look at it and say, wow, I really have to change that. That's not going to work as intended, right? That, that matters a lot. And I'll give an example. This is the first Wizards of the Coast adventure I can recall where it does not wipe out first level characters. That's not true. There's a few others. Like Princes of the Apocalypse, I don't think wipes out characters. Out of the Abyss doesn't necessarily. But many Wizards of the Coast adventures are very hard on first level characters. This one is not. So it's been very enjoyable not to have to modify it, but having the ability to modify it, right? And that is really what makes a powerful adventure. So the first thing I could say about Chapter 3, which I've said about Chapter 1 and 2 as well, is they... They don't require you to modify things, which gives you a lot of freedom about deciding what you do want to modify because it runs pretty well as is. So that said, the first recommendation, so I have a list of different recommendations. These are things that I have done, things that I did when I ran it. I have actually run chapter three. One of the reasons why these videos come out and take a long time to come out is because I want to actually run the full chapter before I talk about it. So I didn't just read it and coming up with that ideas. This is actually experience from having run the chapter for my group myself. One of the things that I did, which worked really well in chapter one and has paid significant dividends in chapter three, is having some children that the characters met in the carnival who have now moved into uh, Prismere and have become this sort of Peter Pan-like group of rogues, right? In my group, they are known as the Faithful Urchins or the FUs. And they were the children that the characters gave their tickets to 
These were children who couldn't make it into the carnival. The characters gave their tickets to the children. The children made their way into the carnival. And then the characters had to make the deal with the goblin, the goblin ticket master at the carnival to get in. And I thought that was a really good change to chapter one. I really enjoyed that. But now it's really paid off because they met them again. And they are very much like you know, the Peter Pan crew, right? That they are older. One thing is they're about three or four years older, even though the characters feel like they've only been in Prismere for a few, maybe a month or two, right? When they meet the FUs, the FUs are three or four years older. And they're like, oh yeah, we were wandering around the carnival and we all lost and we ended up here and we joined together. And they're acting as this sort of rebellion against Scabatha Nightshade, who is the, the, the hag of the Hourglass Coven that operates out of Thither as a resistance to Scabatha Nightshade. And so you can take this idea of Will and the Feywild, which is in the adventure. There are there are there is this character named Will and the Will and the Feywild. And they are a bunch of sort of, you know, adolescent not adolescent children, tweens, teens and tweens, right? That are operating against Scabatha. And Scabatha's trying to hunt them down. And specifically trying to hunt down Will. Well instead you can just sort of pull that out, pull out Will, and add in these children. And if you've customized those children to suit the characters and to kind of fit and have different adventures that they've gone on, that can work really well in chapter one. You can then bring that back up in chapter three. And it it has paid tremendous dividends in my own campaign. And it's something that's lasting. And I'll get into uh, exactly how I've managed to have those children move with the characters. They've actually now split into two different groups. They have an auxiliary group that is staying in Thither and another one that went on to Yan. And we'll talk about that. So that works really well. In the beginning of the adventure, you run into this fellow named Nib. And Nib is a cursed individual who spins gold into magic items and stuff like that. And he's kind of cursed because he, 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 you know, had put people out on the street and some of them had died and the ghosts of the people who died are all there. It's kind of a pretty haunting situation. It's, it's grim. And what's very interesting is that the characters did not trust him at all and he's offering magic items and they really didn't want to take him i had to really push magic items but one of the things that you can do with nib is there's not a lot of opportunities to have vendors in uh this adventure it's hard to buy healing potions it's hard to buy new gear it's stuff like that so kind of churning nib's place into a mixture of him spinning gold into magic items and stuff like that and still doing what he's doing but also as a place where they can give things up in order to get more stuff and the things that they give up could be a story or a song or a memory it could be you know the things that they have because you, you still have the law of reciprocity you still have to give something to get something but you could still make it like a general store and the idea that he sort of has all of the equipment that you'd have in a general store gives the characters an opportunity to bring new items back into their characters, right? If they like, I ran out of my Explorer's kit, or I really wish I'd brought more pythons, right? Well, maybe he has them there. The idea that like the the you could buy pythons, but they're spun from gold is really kind of, is really kind of fun. So that really works to have Nib act as sort of a general store, right? You can use Nib as a general store. You can do this in other ways too. You can have wandering merchants that kind of come through the area and they run in and they kind of have big backpacks with an entire store on their back. You can still have other ways to do it, but Nib is an opportunity for that. Something else that I recommend doing is one of the major sort of arcs of this is the, the coming of the Jabberwock. The Jabberwock is this huge, powerful winged dragon, crazy dragon thing. And you, I definitely want to have that be sort of a climactic, and I think it's intended to sort of be a climactic encounter towards the end of the adventure. But this is our opportunity to foreshadow it. And the way I foreshadowed it is that one of the kids of the FUs, came back and he's like freaking out and he's covered in blood. I actually did it in two ways. I had a couple of 
manticores attack the characters when they were outside of nibs right a couple of real jerk manticores attacked them and they would like fake negotiate in an attack and then when the characters knocked them down to roughly half they flew away right and i think one of them died and the other one flew away and said like i'll, I'll get you my pretties and flew away and then later i had one of the kids come running in and he said it's out i saw that right and he can't even describe what it is and they're like what did you see and he goes i saw it and they're like, what did it sound like? And he started to make the warble sound and they all had to make the saving throw against the Jabberwock's warble because of the imitation the kid was making. And they're like, what was that, right? Like, what did you do? You stunned us with your crazy warble, right? And then they went out there and they're wandering around and they see these huge claw marks in the ground, these giant, like four foot long, you know, 16 inch deep claw marks where something had ripped through and then all of a sudden something comes soaring through the air and it's like the upper torso of a manticore it's the manticore that got away landed on the ground They're like oh my god what is that well the jabberwock's already gone but they've now seen the claws they've heard the warble they've seen that it could rip a manticore in half and they're like there's something out there and they started to ask and certain creatures in the force know about the jabberwock and start to tell them but like the, the fus didn't know about it and other people and the characters didn't know about it at the time like, what is that but it's a good opportunity to kind of force shadow this beast you can do it elsewhere you can have them see it over the mountains and yon but you want to you know make this villain you know if you think of the jabberwock as sort of a big villain that you're going to use in your campaign foreshadow it show it hunting show it out there so that when they get to face it they go oh my god this is that thing we heard about so i think that in thither in particular is a good point to start to foreshadow uh foreshadow the jabberwock so one of the big arcs in this entire campaign is the idea of the unicorn horn right and the unicorn horn, there's, you can roll randomly to determine where it is, but you can also just pick where it is. And I enjoyed dropping it into chapter two. I had it at Bavlorna's cottage. It was actually inside of a pot. I used it as part of my dreadful incursions thing, which I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit more. About half of this video, we're going to spend talking about Van Richten's guide and how to take the domains of dread and in incorporate it into uh, Witchlight. Because there's not really a whole lot to say about Witchlight because it runs so well, right? So we're going to talk about other things. You get to decide where you want to put the unicorn horn. You can roll for it and that can work. But if it like doesn't show up till later, is that really the right spot? You want to kind of determine where they're going to find it. And I think like it's something you can keep in your back pocket as long as you know you're going to have to drop it out there. You get to decide where you're going to put it out. You don't have to roll. I chose Bavlorna's cottage to be the place where where the unicorn horn showed up. But probably in this area, in hither and in thither, is when you really probably want to have the corn, the corn, the the the, the horn show up. So that the characters can have it for a while, they know what to do with it, and because it has a specific part of the arc for Scabatha, which is the recovery of Eladon in Scabatha Nightshade's place. If you don't have the unicorn until later, you would have to come back to save. So it really works, I think, well if you have the characters get the unicorn horn before they go to Scabatha so that they have the opportunity to use it and rescue Eladon. The area of the Wayward Pool is a great scene. It's a really important one. It's one where the characters can learn a whole lot about what's going on in the adventure. And they, if you don't have the horn by around this point, uh, it's going to happen really fast and you don't want to have that. But, and you may miss the attribute. You may have to have the characters backtrack to save Eladon. So I think it works better if they've had the horn. I think it works really well if you put it in chapter two. And that way they've, they've got it. They know what they're talking about. It means that it's much easier for them to talk to Lamorna 
Lamorna is going to be a lot more trusting of them if they have the horn and they explain how they got it and they explain that they will use it to save Eladon. I think that 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 helps considerably. So I would definitely I would definitely try to have the horn in their possession before before they before they go out. So Lamorna knows a whole lot about what's going on in Prismere, what Prismere used to be like, what it was like when Zabilna ruled over it and what's become of it now that Zabilna has been uh, captured and trapped, right? Frozen. So Lamorna is a fantastic place to reveal lots of secrets and clues, to reveal lots of things that are going on. Now, I think one of the interesting things is that Lamorna doesn't know who Zabilna really is. And this is another thing that we can do, which is foreshadowing Zabilna's origin. I don't even want to say it in this video because I don't want to spoil it. But if you've read the adventure, you know the secret of Zabilna's origin. And I think now is the time to start planting those seeds. And we have to be really careful about the seeds we plant because knowing a secret like this makes it very easy for the players to figure things out. I always worry about them like just jumping ahead of the game and maybe they do and if they do that's okay but just foreshadowing little bits the idea that Zabilna hasn't always been here the idea that Zabilna isn't necessarily a uh, true fae lord that she hasn't been a fae lord forever she's only become one the idea that she's sort of new money right the other fae lords you might have one of the other fae lords from somewhere else maybe the characters meet with one of the true summer lords who's like you know we never really like Zabilna. She's not a true Fey Lord like the rest of us. She's only just come into it. But you don't want to have you don't want them to reveal like, well, who is she? Like, where did she where was she before that? But you can give the idea that, like, you know, she has a past. She's she hasn't always been doing this. She's been doing other things. What has she been doing? And you can start to hint at these other things in in this chapter in particular. But you want to be really careful not to blow the punchline too much. So don't give too many hints. Tiny little, tiny little hints. So the idea that Lamorna knows all about what happened with Zabilna, knows about the League of Malevolence, knows about them being frozen, knows that the Unicorn Horn can rescue her, but doesn't necessarily know exactly who she is, right? That, I think that that could, be, that, could be a really powerful, that could be a really powerful thing. So then we come to Loom Lurch, and Loom Lurch is sort of half the chapter is Loom Lurch, which is Scabatha Nightshade's lair. It's a giant log, a big fallen tree that's been carved into her thing. And I think like a lot of the other major layers in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, we can run this as a situation, right? The characters, they have a situation that's going there. There's, the Nightshade is there. She's got these armored soldiers, these tin soldiers that kind of guard things. She's got goblins working things. She's got a bunch of conscripted enslaved kids that are doing work for her. And that's the situation that's going on there, right? Then we have a goal and it might be multiple goals. One goal might be that the children that the characters have allied with need the characters to rescue the other children of this place, right? So rescue the children, big goal. Another big goal is recover your lost thing, right? What some of the characters likely have possessions that were stolen or taken by Scabatha and they want them recovered. They want to take them back. And three is save Eladon, right? Save the unicorn. And so if you have three different goals and you say you got to accomplish all three, right? And you have Scabatha there and you have the situation and then you let the characters decide how they're going to approach it. Are they going to negotiate with Scabatha? So what do they have to negotiate with? Well, Scabatha, more than anything, wants to screw up one of Endelin Nightshade's performances, right? She does not like her older sister. She does not like those dumbass plays that she writes. And she would give up a lot. She might not give up the unicorn. She might not give up the kids, but she might be willing to give back the lost things right? 
So how do the characters negotiate the situation? And it could be fighting their way through. It could be sneaking in espionage and second, second story work. It could be negotiation. It could be all of those. They could actually choose different approaches. So one thing is like you don't make the whole situation so tight that they can't navigate it different ways while they're in the middle of it, that they can fight some stuff and it doesn't end the whole scene. Or they can... They can do other things. And then another thing, and we'll get into it, is you can use dreadful incursions for the right spot. I had it where the characters, she saw the characters, she saw that the characters had ripped off some of her stuff. She comes in, her nails come, like, like big wooden wood nails come out of her hands. She glares at him and she says, oh, you guys are all done here, right? And they're like, I guess we're gonna have to fight Scabatha. And then I had a dreadful incursion occur in the middle of the room they were in. So suddenly I had a whole bunch of crew thicks tear their way through the sides and they're like what the hell and there was a three-way fight between a bunch of crew thicks a bunch of scabatha nightshades people and scabatha nightshade and the characters and it was a great big melee and they ended up casting i think heat metal on her and all the metal in her body oh the key in her back started to melt right and she's freaking out and she said just stop the pain i'll do whatever you want right and so it worked out they didn't have to fight her anyway they still were able to get a negotiation in and it's because the situation was very dynamic so having things like a dreadful incursion having this sort of chaotic element coming from the outside is a great way to shake up the kinds of things that happen in the loom lurch but if you think about loom lurch as you don't have a set of encounters you don't have a specific way it's going to go you have a situation that's a that you have a situation at loom lurch you have a location loom lurch a situation bunch of kids bunch of goblins, bunch of knights, Scabatha. You have goals, save the kids, get your lost things, rescue Eladon, right? And then you just let the characters go forth with that. And 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 you're going to have to work it, right? You're going to have to work the situation and have it react. And But you don't want to always react badly and like harshly against the characters. Like sometimes the characters get lucky. That's cool. Let them get lucky. So that works really well. Uh, something that a friend of mine did, my friend Sharon had a suggestion, and she said that one of the things you can do with the tin soldiers is you can build a countdown clock. So instead of having it that the characters alert the tin soldiers, the soldiers immediately show up, you could have like a four-stage clock that every time they fail something pretty miserably, it gets closer to alerting the soldiers, right? The soldiers, like the, the first thing, the soldiers are aware. The second thing, the soldiers are kind of like, you know, wander around a little bit. The third thing, they're actually kind of alert. And the fourth thing, they actually come after the characters. But you can use this like four-way dial. You know, this is a very Blades in the Dark style countdown clock, right? Of four, you know, it takes four failures before the the the, the tin soldiers really become aware, or before even Scabbath really becomes aware that the characters are there. That's certainly a way to do it. You can also uh, just do it as it fits the story. Like you don't have to have a four clock and okay, well, no, they really are coming this time. It's a good thing to have that in a hand, and it's a good thing to show the players to be like, you're going to alert them if this goes badly again, and they know that they're getting closer, but they know they're not there yet. I think that that works really well. So yeah, and so that's a big part of the adventure is the the, the situation at Loom Lurch, the, the the job, the Loom Lurch job, right? And I don't think that the characters, even if they negotiate with Scabatha, it's unlikely they're going to be able to negotiate all that stuff, which means they're still going to have to do subterfuge to like get her rocking horse, which is Eladon and rescue Eladon, right? And I had it where they negotiated with Scabatha. Scabatha gave them what they wanted, said, you can do this stuff. And then only later found out that they stole the horse. And they're like, you stole my horse, right? I thought that, I think that worked really, that looked really well. The last thing I did is I wasn't crazy about the oil can, the oil can guide to get from uh, Thither to Yan. And I thought a much more interesting and cool guide could be Little Oak. 
the idea that in my case it was the FUs, but Will of the Feywild and his and his brigands, right? That they have this big walking trench named Little Oak. And I gave Little Oak a bunch of new characteristics. One is Little Oak is only really visible to those he wants or they want to see that they want to appear to, which means it has like a cloaking device, right? That if the kids are all up on Little Oak and Little Oak hides, no one can see it, right? Or no one could, it's just another tree. So really good at hiding. The, the other one that Little Oak can do is Little Oak is really big. So it's got hammocks. It's got little clubhouses. It's got, it's almost like a little walking town. And that means the characters can use it as a home base, right? If the characters get in good with whoever the, you're, in my case, it's the friendly urchins, but it could be whatever group, that that becomes a place that the characters can go back to and the children are there working it and they can have dinner with them and they can have a safe place to rest. You know, they have this place and it's like a big walking tree house, right? And then I was like, wouldn't it be cool if Little Oak knew how to navigate between the three areas, which means they could all pile up on Little Oak and Little Oak could walk across the mists and get from thither to Yon. And then their base is still there in Yon. So I really like this idea. It worked out really well. It's paid dividends again, running in Yon because I still have Little Oak. I still have the FUs. I didn't have to let that go over in thither that they now have this. And the oil can was just weird. I forget what it was about the oil can, but I didn't like the oil can nearly as much as I like the other guides. So this worked, this worked really well for me. Uh, having Little Oak, you know, having Little Oak act as a, not only a, a clubhouse and, and, a, and a safe place to rest, but also a home base where the characters could actually build little clubhouses of their own they built like a training place and they built like a place to go meditate and they built all sorts of things they're inside of this big walking living tree house really cool right and then it crossed across the mists so those are all of my big tips for running chapter three like i said chapter three is a lot of fun it's it's much like chapter two it's really good time and i didn't feel like i had to change a lot all the things that i talked about here none of them i felt like i really have to change this like you can have the oil can spigot or whatever his name is you can have the oil can be the guide it totally would work right but you can also look and go eh, not for me i'm going to do something different right you could just run with will of the feywild and that works great or you could be like eh I want to include characters that matter to my players more, right? I want to include NPCs that matter to the characters. So that can work. That can work really well. One of the things that I've been doing in when I run Wild Beyond the Witchlet, I kind of had this idea before I ran it. And I originally did this because I said, I like having combat in D&D. And I want to have combat that doesn't feel like it's a failure on the side of the players. And I felt like... While beyond the witchlight, because every encounter has a way that you could get past it without getting into a fight, I felt like the players might feel like they failed if they got into one, right? That hasn't totally been true. They've gotten into fights with people that was clearly like, hey, the situation's against us, and they have not felt guilty about it. But I also wanted to ensure that there were opportunities for them to get in combat with things that they knew, these are, these are bad things, and we're going to fight. A big zombie clot attacks them. They don't need to worry about, oh, should we negotiate with the zombie clot? No, we're just going to kill it, right? So I wanted to have that option. And I thought it would be kind of fun to take Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, this other book that came out. It's my favorite Wizards of the Coast hardcover book from, from last year, I think. It's a really, really good book. And it has all of these cool domains of dread. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting if all of the domains of dread had, because is no longer there. Zabilna, one of, Zabilna had many roles that she did. This is Mike Shea lore, right? And if you think about who Zabilna is, it makes sense that she did this, right? Zabilna has many different roles and things that she did. But one of the things she did by her mere presence was she pushed the domains of dread away from Prismere, 
right? She was able to keep them at bay. And when she froze, a couple of things happened. One, Prismere started to break up into multiple pieces, maybe even becoming their own domains of dread. This is a cool secret. What if the three layers of Prismere were becoming domains of dread focused around the hags? There's an idea for you. Also, the domains of dread were beginning to bleed in. And I was referring to these as dreadful incursions. And a dreadful incursion is essentially a time where a domain of dread bleeds into your world, Prismere, if you're playing well beyond which light. It bleeds in. And it may be something relatively small. It may be that they see a doorway, they see a weird world through the doorway, and some cursed plagued rats come through. I did this in chapter one, right? A bunch of plagued rats, giant plagued rats from Falkovnia made their way into the world, and they had to fight the plagued rats. So they fought them, they killed them, the gate closed. Really small, you could single encounter, right? You don't have to have a huge encounter. When I ran it in Loom Lurch, what world was it? I think it was the world of the hunt, right? I forget the name of the domain, but it was like the world, the, 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 this land of the hunt. And Kruthix were breaking into Loomlers to get away from the Huntress, to get away from the, the, the Dark Lord who is the Huntress who is out there. She's a were-cat, I think, right? Some kind of were-beast. And she was out there hunting Kruthix. And they were trying to escape her, which is why they burst into Loomlurch. And they saw it through the windows of Loomlurch. But then when they beat the Kruthix, the windows shut and it became the normal world again. So you can have a single encounter that shows sort of off in the side what the domain is like, what the domain of dread is like, but only have like one battle. Or you can extend them. You could make an entire dungeon. So the characters went to Haslan and in Haslan, I actually had them create, I had a dungeon that was half in and half out of the domain. And they saw these like ruins of Haslan and they heard about it. And they heard about, they saw these things and they fought creatures that are from Van Richten's guide that they had never seen before. These weird like mutated dogs that reflected spells. It was really cool stuff, right? They actually got to see Haslick, who was the domain who came there, right? Because they wrecked one of his statues and he could see through the eyes of his statues. So he came there to be like, who are these people, right? Really, So you can do like a dungeon that sort of is in and out of, of, you know, half in and half out of Prismere and the Domain of Dread. You could do just one encounter. You can do it however you want, expand this. But a couple of the things that I did that I really that I really enjoyed is one, you can you can read up on the details of the domain and give a lot of flavor about that domain. Ideally in a really quick spot, but it gives them you know, a deeper glimpse than just like, oh, it's a barren wasteland. No, it's a barren wasteland with like acidic pools caused by magical experiments gone awry and ruins of old cities and, you know, towers with lights shining at the top, baleful lights shining at the top. You can really get into some of the details of the domain and just, you know, inject those a bit. One of the things that I did is I, I, I came up with like a way that this thing works. And the idea is... You have a domain that bleeds into Prismere, right? And there's usually an anchor. There's usually a physical object, some kind of thing that has anchored the domain to the world. And it could be an object from Prismere that has ended up in the domain. Like I had, I did this with Eladon's horn. Eladon's horn was inside Blutspur. Only a little bit. It was only like 20 or 30 feet in, but they had to go into Blutspur to grab it and to bring it out before Mind Flayer vampires tried to kill him right? That was really neat. You could also have an object from the domain show up in Prismere. And because the, this physical object has made it over, it's caused the rift to exist. And it's made it like something has to be done with that object to close the rift. Maybe it has to be destroyed. Maybe it has like a curse on it has to be removed. Maybe it has to be thrown back into the other place. Maybe it has to be taken forward and broken. The idea is that it's an anchor and it has a chain. And that either the anchor has to be cast back out or the chain has to be broken to close the rift 
right? And when the characters start to learn about these physics, they could even say like, oh, there's a domain. What's the anchor, right? We got to go find this object that, that's causing this to exist. And that could be a one-use magic item. It could be a magical artifact like Eldadon's horn. It could be lots of different things. Well, I, I like to use, I like to use the objects that are in, that are in Van Richten's guide. You can, you can actually go, there's a horror trinket section in chapter one, the end of chapter one. And you could roll on these things, right? There's a hundred different items in here. You know, black wooden die with ones on all the faces. And that could be the anchor, right? You might, you might pick a, the, you know, might pick one of these that fit the object. You can use this list. I also, you can use a, any trinket list. The Lazy DM's Companion and the Lazy DM's Workbook both have lists to generate trinkets. You could, you could certainly do that. Clockwork device that beats like a heart, right? Which domain does that make sense for, you know? Pick, pick objects that make sense for the domain. That's, that's the anchor. And then you can tie a spell effect to them. And I would tie a big spell, like a third, fourth, or fifth level spell, or even higher, right? Put a big spell on it so that now they have this object. Maybe they get to keep it. And maybe it's got a single use of a spell on it that they can, that they can use later. So I think that has worked really well. So you can use these objects and you can use the domains for all kinds of different purposes. One great time to drop combat into a, a scene. It's a great time to like cause a bit of chaos, a lot of things like that. But one of the things that you can do around this time, around chapter three, is a time where you could say, we're gonna do more than just drop in an incursion, right? We're actually gonna have one of the Dreadlords become aware of the incursions themselves. And I sort of determined this randomly. One, one very cool list that exists inside uh, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft is they have a list. It's actually down. It's kind of hard to find. It's if you go to the other domains of dread chapter, this is part of chapter three, about halfway through chapter three. If you're using the physical book, other domains of dread, they have a random list of all the domains, including all the main domains and the secondary domains. Right. And it's, I think it's about 50 of them. Right. And you can roll and when you want to have a random encounter with a random domain of dread, you can roll on this list and it tells you what the domain is like. Right. So when I had the characters traveling from thither to yon by traveling on Little Oak, I rolled on this list and I got one of the worlds. And it was the world that was like the, the weird world of plague rats. And, and it was like a French sort of a, a French curse of the Red Death world. Right. And that was really neat. They saw it. They fought some were rats. They actually saw a guy becoming a were rat. They, they helped the guy become a were rat. Not really. He was going to be a were rat. And they said, you should just stick around and be a were rat. That's probably the best thing that can happen to you here. Being a were rat in this world is probably a pretty good gig. So they, you, you can roll on this list to determine what the incursion is. It's really, really handy. But around this point, if you're doing this idea, if you're, if you're using dreadful incursions in the campaign, around this point is when one of the Dreadlords becomes aware that these incursions are occurring and thinks that is a way for me to escape. And now you have a separate plot going on, overlapping with the plot that's going on while beyond the Witchlight. A Dreadlord is trying to escape their domain of dread, right? They've learned about it. They know that these incursions are occurring. They might be trying to figure out how to cause them or how to make them stable so that they can escape. They got to be at the right place at the right time. They're learning about it. And one of the ways that this worked in my game is one of the characters used her quarterstaff to shove over an object that was a, an anchor. And as soon as she did, it snapped shut and it cut off the end of her staff. And that end of the staff became like an artifact. It's just this chunk of wood, but it's a chunk of wood from a world beyond Falkovnia. And Falkovnia was a world that they connected. And they, they saw this world and they said, and they saw this object. They said, as long as we have this object, we can find gates and keep them open, right? So they took it and they sliced it into discs and they made amulets and she gave us, she had about six of these. She kept one herself and she gave five others to five captains. And she said, go out into Falkovnia, find the gates, open them, 
make them stable. Let us know so that I can escape, right? I can escape and we can leave this domain of dread. So that becomes a quest and she could be working on it in the background. The characters might learn about it because in my game, they're meeting Falkovnian soldiers, right? They're, they're, they're finding Falkovnian soldiers that have escaped, right? And they've made their way through and they're now in it. And they're like, we're trying to find a stable gate to get back so we can tell her because our gate closed when we came through. They're learning about it, right? So I think that that is a really fun way to expand on the... Uh, whole dom- the, the whole dreadful incursion idea and make it a whole separate plot and for me that's fun because it's adding a whole different complication it's a little homebrew that makes me feel like i've got some creative my own creative juices in this campaign the characters dig it there's actually in my in my wednesday game one of the players has a father who's a demon a devil devil i think he's a devil an arch an arch devil who is trapped in a domain of dread a random one that i created right and his bracelet, which is the object that was stolen by Endolin, by Endolin Moonshade, right? Endolin Nightshade, Endolin Moonshade. The bracelet that he has enables him to reach into the domain of dread, take his father's arm and take his father out of the domain. And we don't know what that will do, right? Because one of the things about it is the, 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 the dark lords that are trapped there are trapped there by entities known as the dark powers. The dark powers don't want them to escape. And they're very, very powerful. So what does it mean if somebody's trying to escape? What happens if Vladeska Drakov, the Dark Lord of Falkovnia, escapes to Prismir and makes it? What would the Dark Powers do then? I don't know. And that's where this is all headed. And I think it's really cool. What happens when Kolshek, my character in my Wednesday game, takes his braceleted hand, finds a portal, puts his hand through, and tries to draw his father out? And brings his father out. And first of all, it's like, is bringing a, an archdevil out? I think I think I know where this is going, because I think the archdevil, the reason why the archdevil is trapped is because he tried to not be an archdevil anymore. He fell in love with an elf, and he just wanted to be a normal humanoid. And they're like, nope, and you are going to this. He was trapped by his other archdevils. So I think he's still a good guy. And being a good guy is what made him trapped in a domain right but still the dark the dark powers will not be happy if you escape around this time if you're using domains of dread now is a really good time to be able to expand the plots of the of of the dreadful incursions bring in some recurring dreadful incursions for me i I like falkovnia falkovnia is really cool vadeska drakov which is a random role i didn't know it was going to be falkovnia but vadeska has turned out to be a really fun villain that the characters haven't ever met yet right they know she's out there they hear about her they hear what she's doing but they haven't met her yet right but they know what she's up to. I think that that's really cool. So, so yeah, this whole chapter is a really good part, a really good point to start escalating some of those bigger events that are occurring, starting to bring things in and start to do a lot with it. So that is it for my overview of Wild Beyond the Witchlight Chapter 3 and my discussion of the expansion of Dreadful Incursions in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I hope you enjoyed this video. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, becoming a patron of Sly Flourish, picking up any of my books, or subscribing to my videos here on YouTube. You can find all of the links to all of those in the show notes below. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D.